There's a line in that song that says, for 10,000 years, God's mercies would remain if everything else passed away. And really, when we look at the word today, we're going to ask ourselves whether we believe that or not. It's a, a, a great text to segue into the word. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23, where we'll be today. It is a privilege to come and share the word with you this morning. This evening, we normally would have a service, but because it's a fifth Sunday in our month, we give you all the opportunity to take time to reach to those who are perhaps near you or um, you're acquainted with to strengthen relationships, build relationships for the gospel's sake. It's an outreach Sunday, what we call an outreach Sunday. We're giving you the opportunity to just take some time, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but take time that you otherwise wouldn't take to reach out to someone who does not know the Lord, or perhaps someone that you've been discipling, and spend time with them, and uh, be encouraged and edified with them. So we will not have an evening service uh, this Sunday, but we'll return back to our normal schedule next Sunday. Also, just want to bring to your attention the missionaries that we are supporting the Van Rhines from the Netherlands. They'll be with us this coming Wednesday. Uh, they'll be presenting an update from their ministry. We've been supporting them for, for years. So I encourage you to come and, and hear uh, how they are doing there serving overseas. So Proverbs chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings, and like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. You know, 2018 is an anniversary for us. I don't know if you knew this or not. It's an anniversary. We get to celebrate 10 years ago when our home values plummeted and when our stock portfolios, if you had a retirement, also plummeted. Do you remember that 10 years ago? How many of you had your home value impacted negatively uh, by what happened? Uh, yes, yes. How many of you had perhaps retirement or investments impacted by what happened in 20, 2008? Those events in 2008, 10 years ago, were some of the most destructive in recent history. In fact, uh, in 2008, the stock market experienced one of the greatest one-day losses in history. Uh, in 2008, the leading home price index reported its largest price drop in home values in our country's history. And it's interesting because, honestly, when we measure what we have materially, it comes more or less in the form of a paper or perhaps a screen that gives a number. Like, for example, your home value you know, really isn't measured in the number of dollar bills you have in your home. It's measured by an appraiser or the property value or whatever. And it's just a number. And in one year, that number changed. Like, it went down. Even though maybe nothing happened to your property at all. In fact, you could have made improvements to your property, to your home. And that number still went down. Same thing with perhaps any investments or any stocks that you had. All you have is that little number on a piece of paper. And for whatever reason, the number goes down. Is it right? Uh-uh. Is it fair? Uh-uh. But it's real. It just disappeared. There were people who literally had millions of dollars invested in accounts. And then the paper they got says zero. 
Where did that money go? Well, some found out it never really existed. Well, it existed when they transferred it from their accounts, but it doesn't exist anymore. And so many people lost millions. People went to prison. People took their own lives. Happy 10-year anniversary to this great moment in the United States history. Happy anniversary. I say that somewhat in jest because here we are 10 years later, and especially on the heels of the news last week, where our economy seems to be going okay. Or it seems like it's getting better. It seems like things, you know, from a job standpoint, you know, you can drive down the street and you see a lot of help wanted signs. You know, that's a good thing. But I think we need to be careful not to forget perhaps lessons that we ourselves have learned in our lifetime and certainly lessons that we see in God's Word. As we look at the book of Proverbs, we see the insurmountable value of wisdom. Wisdom is a jewel. It's precious. It's wonderful. More valuable than any treasure. And so today, I want to leave you with this. Wisdom, especially discernment, will protect you from becoming a workaholic for wealth. Wisdom, and in particular discernment, will protect you from becoming a workaholic for wealth. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we look into His Word. God, this is Your Word and we want to get it right. We need Your Spirit. Lord, I thank You for giving us Your Spirit. But we need Your Spirit to open our eyes to see truth, to welcome truth, and Lord, to apply truth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer of this proverb, Proverbs uh, chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, wants his pupil to understand that there is virtue in hard work. But the goal of hard work should never be for the goal of getting rich. Why? Because riches are fleeting. They're like a magic trick. Now you see them, now you don't. Wisdom from God, however, is a precious and eternal commodity. And so I said that discernment will protect you from becoming a workaholic for wealth. I want us to see this in three different ways. First of all, the discerning person, according to this verse, the discerning person will work hard for the right reasons. The discerning person will work hard for the right reasons. Let's look here at verse, 20, or verse 4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Some other translations say, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Those in this verse that the, the author is talking about, they were working themselves to the point of physical exhaustion. This is physical exhaustion with the goal of gaining wealth. Now, the author is not speaking about working and getting wealth. Like, He's not speaking about of the consequence of doing hard work and acquiring wealth. Just reading the book of Proverbs, we learn that often God blesses those who work hard with wealth. In verse, uh, chapter 10 and verse 4, it says, The hand of the diligent makes rich. In that same chapter, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, It is the Lord who makes rich when it is accompanied by God's hand of blessing and hard work. So there's no fault, there's no immorality of a person working hard and God blessing with wealth. However, the book of Proverbs is clear that riches acquired unbiblically are a curse. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 10 says, The man who makes haste to become rich 
will not go unpunished. When His work is consuming Him to where He must work so that He must gain wealth for Himself, this is a sin in God's eyes. This is an abuse of the command to work. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, they were given the privilege of work. That wasn't part of the curse. It was something fundamental to their existence. And work was a joy and work was a delight. It's an abuse of God's command to work when work becomes the means to a self-centered end. The Bible is not saying that we shouldn't wear ourselves out to the point of exhaustion. It's saying that we shouldn't wear ourselves out to the point of exhaustion for wealth. And there is a difference. There's a difference. Before we explain why we shouldn't do this, and we'll look at the passage, there are some things we need to talk about that, frankly, it's good to wear ourselves out to the point of exhaustion. And I know that might go against the grain of comfort and perhaps societal expectations that you know, we put in our work at one point in time and then we can kind of coast and, and just take it easy and, and cruise into the end portion of our life. But I would say that the Bible would have us work hard at certain things even to the point of exhaustion. And I'll mention two. One from the immediate context and one from the greater context. Okay. The first one is working hard at acquiring wisdom. At acquiring wisdom. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Why should we work hard, even to the point of exhaustion, for wisdom? We'll look at verse 10. Take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine, and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, in my yield better than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the midst of the paths of justice, to endow those who love me with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. We work hard to, to acquire wisdom and discernment. But this isn't just like this generic sense of wisdom and, and, and discernment. This isn't just simply book knowledge or head knowledge. Remember, wisdom and discernment is the practical application of what is learned in a skillful way in an appropriate time. Thus, depending on where you are in life, working hard at acquiring wisdom may simply look like providing for your family. It may simply look like maintenancing what God has given you already. One commentator put it this way. In a culture like ancient Israel, based on subsistence agriculture, wealth means good crops, a well-fed family, and a stable farm to pass on one's children, rather than luxurious wealth a modern reader may think of. Further, Proverbs has a clear set of priorities in which wisdom is far better than wealth, 
And righteousness with few possessions is better than wealth without knowing the Lord and walking in righteousness. Now listen to this. Because you, 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 you kind of work through this. Okay, so what does this look like practically? On the outside, it may look no different than someone else who's just working to provide for their family or just working to maintain what God has given them so that they can be a steward. It may look no different on the outside. However, the work itself and the effort put into the work is different because of one's motive. Why we do what we do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the fulfillment of the law. And loving our neighbor as ourselves. The one who works hard at acquiring wisdom does it because he loves God so much. Or she loves God so much. And so one's motive fuels the efforts into acquiring with wisdom. The wise man will work hard to provide for his family and provide for others. The workaholic will, for wealth will work hard to provide for himself. He will be the primary beneficiary of this hard work. So we work hard to acquire wisdom and discernment. But I would also say, when we read here in Proverbs chapter 23, do not work hard, do not labor to become rich for wealth. We would also say that we work hard for souls. We work hard for souls. Well, whose? First of all, yours. What did Jesus say? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but what? Loses his soul. And what shall he give in exchange for his soul? What Jesus is saying is that your soul is of preeminent value. And nothing material, nothing earthly can compare to the value of your soul. Before anything else, and and I'll just ask this point blank, are you born again? Are you right with God? What else is more important than you and your soul and its position before your soul's creator, God? Nothing. Are you truly saved? Or are you exchanging your soul for the wealth of this world? What gets you up in the morning? What drives you to work hard? To work, period. This isn't like a formal exchange as far as uh, when we say exchanging the, the, the world for our soul. It's not like a formal exchange, like a deal with the devil, but it's practical. It's, it's, it's a, a practical analysis of what in the world is the most valuable to us. And is it our soul or is it the well? Second of all, the soul, if God has blessed you with a spouse, the soul of your spouse is of immense value. The soul of your spouse. So in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church, we see this relationship of husband and wife loving one another and valuing one another, even so much so that God calls those two one flesh. So the soul of your spouse is of infinite value. And those of you who are in a marriage, you work hard at building up that soul. You work hard at maintaining that relationship even to the point of exhaustion, even to the point where you don't feel like you can, you do it. Why? Because of its infinite value. How about the souls of your children? If God has blessed you with children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 speaks of the father and the mother 
who spend time investing in their children, instructing them in godliness, teaching them God's Word. Why? Because their souls are going to spend somewhere forever. They might get an inheritance from you, but even more than an inheritance, they should get the Gospel from you. They should get a godly example from you. These souls are infinitely valuable. And what are we substituting when we pursue wealth, when we pursue our own selfish gain, instead of the souls of our children? And then, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, to esteem the interests of others, and in the context, it's the church. The interests of others is more important than our own. And then finally, the lost. People are dying and going to hell today. Do you know that we live, and, and you say, okay, so the loss, how does this all to do with working hard for wealth? And da, da, da. Uh, stay with me. Do you know that we live in perhaps one of the most difficult evangelistic places in the world? I don't know if you think of Menor, Ohio as a difficult place for evangelism. But Jesus spoke of two people groups that were immensely difficult to reach with the gospel. The wealthy and the religious. And he says, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to get into heaven. And then those who are religious, Jesus was the most hard on. And they were the most stubborn because they were secure in their ways. How is this possible? You see, wealthy religious people really have no need of being saved. Saved from what? They believe and acknowledge God at some level. I mean, they are, after all, religious. So they're giving at least lip service to God. And, well, hey, if you look at their wealth, God seems to approve of it. We live in the wealthiest country ever. We live at the wealthiest time of the wealthiest country ever. And if we don't perceive ourselves as wealthy, it's because we're seeing someone else who's a little bit more insanely wealthy than we are insanely wealthy. I mean, we have air conditioning blowing out of vents. We have electricity. We have indoor plumbing. We have automobiles. We have technology at our fingertips. We have clean water. There are billions, billions of people who have not enjoyed those luxuries. And here we are in our city, Northeast Ohio, a pocket of religious wealth. It's hard work to give the gospel to the point where we often don't feel like we have the energy to do it because of everything else that comes into play. Now, I want to make another side note. These cares for souls, these care for souls are part of a unique burden that God has given you if you know Christ. Okay? So when Christ called followers to himself, he said what? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right? So if Jesus is saying that, he's saying that there is something unique to the burden, there's something unique to the discipleship of an individual for Christ. Even beyond the normal cares and responsibilities of life. So let me put it this way. Anyone can lose a job. You don't have to be a Christian to lose a job. Anyone can have difficult children. Anyone can struggle with disease or cancer or some physical infirmity. And I'm not trying to minimize those things. 
Why I bring those things up is because as a Christian, we have an additional burden, if I can put it that way, we have an additional responsibility to respond in a biblical way while we're going through those things and to care about other souls while we're going through those things. So let me use a, a point of illustration. So for 13 years, um, I worked part-time for the city of Mentor, and I was a day camp counselor. And an individual came to me this past week, we're at Grace Bible Day Camp, and they asked me, they said, so is this, you know, the time that you spent there at Mentor, uh, for the city of Mentor being a day camp counselor, is that helpful for what you're doing here? I said, yes and no. Yes with the children, but no, not with the souls. Because the individuals, all the, the, the children and the parents and whatever, you know, over at Mentor, I'm representing the city of Mentor. My job is to be a counselor if they go home safely and have fun great. Here, I care that they go home safely and have fun, but I also, and we also, care for their souls. Amen. There's a burden of how I even hold myself and how we hold ourselves to the extent that we know we represent something bigger than just us. We represent Christ. And so that level of investment for them isn't just, okay, behave, stop talking, play games, have fun, be safe, go home. Instead, it's sitting down, talking to them about where they're going to spend eternity. And you know, that's really the case of every person in this room that claims the name of Christ and lives life. Because when you're home, and there you are doing your yard work and taking care of your property perhaps, and your neighbors see you, there's a representation that you have. There's a, perhaps even a relationship that you have with your neighbors. That it's more than just being a good neighbor and taking care of your lawn and making sure your stuff doesn't get in theirs. When you're an employee and you go to work, there's a representation there. Knowing that it's more than just showing up on time and doing your job, it's also you representing something bigger, someone bigger, to the other souls that are there. It could be parenting as well. It's more than just having your children grow up to be healthy and strong and, and be able to support themselves when they get old enough. But that there's a burden to see them become like Christ and accept Him as Savior. That's exhausting. But it's worth it, right? So going back to Proverbs chapter 23. Do not weary yourself out to gain wealth. The verse does not say, do not weary yourself out. The end. To gain wealth. And the, really the point of application here is, if our exhaustion level is so great because of what we're doing to acquire wealth, that all of those other aspects of gaining wisdom, of burdens for souls, if all of those are just kind of periphery or uh, I hope to get to it someday, then we are out of order. We're out of order. Okay. Getting back to our primary point, we have to admit the temptation to earn more wealth is often stronger than these things. It is. The temptation to earn wealth is often more stronger than love for souls or for gaining for wisdom. How? Well, Let's just, let's look at income levels here. And this might be a little awkward at first, but bear with me. Teenagers. Usually teenagers make the least amount of money. Okay? Usually. 
Okay, there are some teens that are very entrepreneurial and gifted, and that's great. But normally teens, when they first start working, they're making minimum wage. They're babysitting, they're working at fast food or whatever, and that's fine. Can, those of you who are teens here, how much money do you want to make? What's your goal? I mean, how much would you be satisfied with? And I want you to think about that like right now, even though you're in school, even though a month from now you're going to be back in school. I get that. Some of you have jobs throughout the year. How much is too much? I mean, are there parameters? Are there, there are certain things maybe you're saving for college? But like at what point is too much? And how much do you need to work to provide for that goal? And how much of a priority is work in comparison to acquiring wisdom and to the souls around you? And the reason why I bring this up with teens is that making the decision at an early age to prioritize making money over time with spiritual and physical family and over wisdom comes with long-term consequences. Decisions are being made even now to where what you think is enough and what you need to do to get there when it starts to compartmentalize your spiritual relationships or your desire for wisdom, that starts now. And can I even encourage parents? You're part of that decision-making process too. As I've been given the privilege to work with teens, as I've been given the privilege with work with, to work with young adults, one thing I've found to almost universally be true, almost universally, and that is this. If your child works hard, if they show up on time, if they're a learner, and a team player, they'll be able to ask off work whenever they want when it comes to prioritizing being with a body of believers. Because they will be valued as an employee. And the employer will want to work with that individual because of the value they bring to that company. And when you, as a parent, allow for your children to start making decisions that prioritize accumulating wealth at an early age, don't be surprised when later on it starts to push out other things even more. So let's go from teens to young adults. Young adults. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7 because the point I want to make, I, I want us to really see it in Scripture. I don't want you to just simply take my word for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. How can one's desire for wealth interfere with the opportunities to acquire wisdom and to love souls. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in particular verse 32. The context here, Paul is talking to Corinthian Christians, both married and unmarried. He's talking to those who have a strong desire for marriage, and he's talking to those who don't have a strong desire for marriage. Starting in verse 32, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he or she may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he or she may please his wife, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, 
not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Now what Paul is not talking about is women going to a monastery completely sequestering themselves from the world. What he is talking about is a benefit and a privilege that comes from being single. That is being, and I'll use the word, without the cares of this world. Without the cares of how to please one's spouse and how to provide for one's children. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul discusses both marriage and singleness. And one of the primary advantages of singleness, and Paul would know, he is single, was the opportunity to invest in the work of the ministry. Paul was not talking about vocational ministry per se. Those who were not burdened with the cares of this world, i.e. a spouse or children, had greater freedom to serve in the body of Christ. In our society, what singleness provides is the opportunity to invest more time in one's career or more hobbies, more time for hobbies, or perhaps enable a person to enjoy more recreation without anyone tying them down. In a weird sort of way, we tend to think that once a Christian settles down with a spouse, with a family, then he or she will really find a ministry they can commit to. But in the meantime, they just kind of wander about and, you know, try to find themselves. Really, and biblically, that's backwards. While you are single, you have the greatest opportunity to invest in souls. In marriage and parenthood, there are certain souls that are automatically prioritized for you. That's good, but if you're single, you have the freedom to invest in many more souls with that freedom. Now that is counter-cultural, but it is biblical. Thus, you must fight the temptation to use your freedom, and I'm talking to those who are single, and you could be young, you could be older. You must fight the temptation to use your freedom primarily for making money or building your career. How does this look for you? And if you're struggling with this, and here's the blessing of it all, there are saints in this room that have been doing this for years. Who, they have not been married, but they've used that singleness to the advantage of building the church and seeing God work in their lives. And honestly, if that's something where you are single and you're struggling with it and you're finding, I just have to work, I just have to work, I just have to work, I can't do this because i got to work, I just got to work, I think there needs to be a necessary stepping back and start asking some more fundamental questions. I and mean, when will that ever stop? And then when you stand before the Lord, I mean, if today was the day that Christ came, what do you have to show for your singleness? for the opportunities that God gives. Okay? Married couples, in your relationship, as you navigate the seasons of life together, finances can provide varying levels of stress. We know this. Finances are cited as the number one reason for divorce. You may have accumulated, perhaps, a large amount of student loans or credit card debts or whatever, and so your work to accumulate wealth could be for noble motives. We want to eliminate debt. But what standard of living do you think will bring you happiness and peace? I mean, at what level in your marriage do you reach that kind of financial place where, okay, this is enough? 
You know, if we were just able to do this, or if we were just able to have this, or if we were just able to live this way, then we would be happy. In the meantime, what sacrifice along the way? These are questions that we as Christians must ask because the Christian who becomes a workaholic for wealth may achieve the goal. It may be, in fact, that you achieve the goal of wealth, of riches. You've worked yourself to the bone. You've accumulated wealth for yourself. But in the meantime, the most valuable things that God has given you, your soul, your family, your spiritual family, the lost souls around you might be expendable. Okay? We spent a lot of time talking about the physical aspects, this working hard. But let's keep going with Proverbs chapter 23. Say, so it's about time. Are we supposed to preach the Bible? We're doing all this talk. Well, okay. Back to Proverbs 23. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth, cease from your consideration of it. Another translation says, do not trust your own cleverness. The literal translation from the Hebrew is, be wise enough to desist from it. The point here is to have enough discernment to stop scheming ways of making more money. Okay, so the first phrase, Proverbs chapter 23, don't physically wear yourself out. Second phrase, don't mentally wear yourself out. There's this ongoing thought process within an individual. How can I make more money? What can I do that will be able to hit it? What can I do to be able to now start to get more? I can do this better. I can make more money. And the scheming and the thought process and everything is just ongoing drive. Proverbs 23, verse 4 says, Cease from your consideration of it. This is juxtaposed against working hard with the trust in God. Why? Because the scheming really adopts a human standard for what is successful. How much is enough? Well, really, everyone around me gets to determine that. Society determines that. The person next door who has this new thing determines that. And so now I need to keep up. Or now I need to be able to get this new thing. Instead of trusting in the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Perhaps the first phrase is a warning against physically exhausting the second phrase is a warning against mentally exhausting. Gaining wealth is really more about the thrill of the hunt. Uh, it's more about the workaholic never being satisfied. I, I, you know, just as, as a point of illustration. So uh, one of my daughters had a surgery um, that uh, was pretty significant. And after the surgery, many of you showered lots of love on her to the point where she was being given gifts in abundance. Like, we were, and, and I'm not exaggerating here, there was a month period of time where my wife and I were coming home with seven to eight gifts each Sunday. And so the first Sunday, we come home and we give her these gifts, and, and it was like this transformation of our daughter into this weird morph of, you know, have you ever seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? So like Augustus Gloop, who just wants everything, and Veruca Salt, who demands everything now. And, and it was amazing in that there was so much abundance and that all the abundance seemed to do was bring out a greater desire for more now. That's what wealth does. That's what the pursuit of wealth 
does. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10. You don't have to turn there. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 says, says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is advanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what's the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of a working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. You know, God commends the one who works hard as long as his labor is focused on eternal value. Matthew chapter 6 tells us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, things that will last forever. But in contrast to the treasures in heaven, we're warned not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth. These things are temporary. So not only will the discerning man work hard for the right reasons, that's our first point, a very long point. I promise the other points will be short. He will also grasp the short-lived nature of wealth. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 5. When you set your eyes on wealth, it is gone. For wealth will certainly make itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So the second point, the discerning person will grasp the short-lived nature of wealth. Why discernment? Why use that word discernment? Because when you set your eyes on it, when the person sets their eyes on wealth, when they're fixed on it, it's gone. Literally, will your eyes fly on it and it's not even there? Riches, like I said before, have this, now you see me, now you don't quality. Explain that before. Where in just 10 years ago, so many individuals were confident in their wealth and literally within a day or two, their wealth was gone. And notice here, the verbiage in, in, in verse 5, for wealth certainly makes itself wings. Not maybe. This isn't a hypothetical. Like, eh, for some of you it's going to stick around. You're okay, so you know, hope that's you. No, it says certainly they will make their cells wings fly. Where do they go? I mean, they just fly away? Where do they go? Well, Ecclesiastes says they could be consumed by companions. They could be consumed by others. Matthew chapter 6 says they're by nature temporary. They could be lost. They could be stolen. I mean, really, everything that we have, it's going to burn. It really is. Everything that we have, materially, is going to stop existing at some point in time. I am amazed at how quickly things that are so valuable become things of little value in such a short period of time. If you don't believe me, live next to an abandoned house. A house that's left to itself. Within months, it's amazing at how much of an eyesore and how much of a really just, a, a, just something that, that you'd wish it would go away, how, how it becomes where at one point it was the pride and joy of someone. You know, I, I, I think I've used this illustration before, but when you drive by a, a junkyard and you see cars that are all demolished, I mean, that used to be the pride and joy of someone. That used to be in a showroom and, and people would stand by it and go like this and say, yes, buy this. It's gone. That's the nature of material things. Now, I want us to have our eyes on Matthew chapter 6. I know it's a very familiar passage, but let's turn there. Matthew chapter 6.
Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Having and applying discernment to the short-lived nature of wealth. Hear me out. Having and applying this discernment to the short-lived nature of wealth puts the Christian at odds with the world around him. How so? Because there is almost an insanity or a madness that the world demonstrates when it lives for wealth. It values the things that are temporary and fleeting over the things that are eternal and fixed. And when we fall into the trap at becoming a workaholic for wealth, we too make eternity and the things of eternal value into a delusion, as one author put it. Like to the world, we are deluded because we value the invisible, whereas they value the visible. They value the here and now. We value the eternal, things we have not seen, things that we've been promised. This is nuts to the world. And yet, it is the wisdom of God. Why? Because we're told these things will never fly away. These things will exist for eternity. The Christian who really believes that he is laying up for himself treasures in heaven sees the folly of engrossing himself in the vanities of life. He is investing in what will never fly away. Isn't it amazing how hard-earned fruits of labors to be rich can be wiped out just like that? I mean, just like that, it can be gone. Do you know that that is not the case for eternal rewards? That is not the case for souls. That is not the case for the fruit of the Spirit. That is not the case for building up the body of the believers. That is not the case for fifth Sunday outreaches. That is not the case for investing in a Bible study at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. That's not the case. These are eternal. We see that the discerning person works hard, but for the right things and for the right things. And we also see that the discerning person grasps the short-lived nature of wealth. But what then should the Christian substitute for this tendency? I would say that the substitution for this tendency is a little word that starts with a C and ends with untentment. And it's called contentment. Okay? Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want or lacking anything, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's also look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll spend a little bit more time here in this passage as we finish up.
1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. But godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Remembering that what we have been given is given by God. What we have ultimately is a gift from God. Thus, we've been called to be stewards of that. My house is God's house. My apartment is God's apartment. My car is God's car. My bank account is God's bank account. I've done everything I can do, or I am to do everything I can do, to be a wise steward of that. And it's not a matter of tug of war. Okay? I don't hold on to that rope so tightly when he decides to pull. If he decides to pull, he gets it. And if he decides it pull, if he decides perhaps to pull it sooner than what I was planning, like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I mean, I don't know that any of us have it endured that something that extreme, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because he's creator. He gets the right. He has the right to be able to we're stewards. Contentment, though, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, enables us to truly see the value of godliness. And really what this comes down to is a value judgment. What we really value. In contrast, the value of something like perseverance is lost when the love of money controls an individual. Look at verse 10. For some of it have, some have, I'm sorry, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Perseverance was not valuable. Wisdom, the fear of the Lord, souls were less valuable than their love for money. Contentment actually protects us, and this is amazing here in verses 9 and 10. It protects us from self-inflicted wounds. Self-inflicted. Meaning this, I'm the one doing damage to myself when I fall into this trap of becoming a workaholic for wealth. So I hope you enjoy your 10th anniversary of having this truth very vividly reminded to you. And I'm sure as we go along in the year, we're probably going to have you know, different news bits and news clips and whatnot remind us of what happened 10 years ago. And, of course, we're you know, always going to hear someone say, hey, the bubble's about to burst. We might have this happen all over again and whatnot. But can I ask you just a few questions? As we remember what happened maybe 10 years ago, or perhaps you remember some circumstance that this truth became very real in your life, could I just ask you, when it comes to your wealth, what God has given you to be a steward of, be it little, be it much, what amount is enough for you? What will you sacrifice to get more of it? Will you sacrifice your family? Worshiping with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Relationships or service within the church? 
you might be thinking, well, see, I have very little, so I really don't have to worry about this. I don't have to pursue wealth because I don't have any wealth. Can I tell you this? Materialism really has less to do with how much materials you have. It probably has more to do with what you have or the way that you are when you don't have them. So you can have someone that has very little wealth but be very materialistic. And I think making sure that we understand this protects us from this poverty equals piety mindset. There are some that God abundantly blesses with wealth, and they are not materialistic. And they read Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 4 and 5, and they can stand before God with a clear conscience. And we can rejoice, because many of those individuals also have the spiritual gift of giving, with which the body of Christ and the greater community benefits. So to that end, what do you value? If Christ came today, what would you have to show for your life? Things that will burn up or things that will remain? You know, even an unbeliever, in all of this, even an unbeliever can grasp the reality. You know, money isn't everything. Money doesn't make you happy. But can I tell you, only a believer can truly comprehend what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, Paul's talking about really the loss of his career. Talking about everything he was as a very successful religious leader. And he says this, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss. And here's the key. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Only a believer knows that value. You know, there's a hymn in our hymnal, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The last verse. Says, were the whole world, the whole world of nature, the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Let me ask you is love the thing that's so amazing, so divine, demanding your life, your soul, your all, or is it your career? My career, so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. My retirement fund is so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. My vacations and my boats and the success and the American dream and all these things that I want and I feel like I deserve, that's my divine, that's my heart, my soul, my all. Let's not fall into that trap. Of all people, Christians who have all of our faith wrapped up in a Savior we have not seen and a promise we have not yet fully experienced, let's of all people live that reality out, valuing the invisible and the eternal instead of falling into the trap of desiring wealth and becoming workaholics to get it. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how good you are, how patient you are. Lord, you often give us warnings in your word, knowing that we've heard them before, knowing that we just have that same susceptibility to fall into the same trap again and again. And I feel, Lord, just as a believer myself and as with my brothers and sisters in Christ, these are instructions that will need to be routine throughout our lives, that will be need to be reminded of the fact that why we are serving sometimes to the point of exhaustion for spiritual things that we don't always see the fruit of, at least immediately. That, God, they really are worth it. 
When I think of the souls that even we ministered to this past week, I think of the servants who ministered this past week. Those, those ministers who, not just this week, but regularly prioritize the body of believers. They prioritize service within the community and, and within the community of believers and, and evangelism within our community. God, remind them. Give them joy in that service because of what it means to you and because of its eternal value. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.